Right. This reading is from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. As a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Sharon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we um, we thank you for today. We thank you for the chance to be here. And uh, again, we just ask that you'd speak to us by your Spirit. Uh, help focus our hearts and minds upon you, because we love you and we want to become more like your Son and live in a way which brings honour and glory to your name more and more. So be with us now and help us with this, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, James asked us just before to uh, turn to the person next to you and... Um, so some, just ask a question about something that struck you in the talk. The only question I got asked in the break was this. People wanted to see how I whistled. That's how I do it, out the side. It's, um, I was going to say it's a birth defect, but I've already shown that that's not true, is it? It was violence. <laughs> Relationship with other Christians. Uh, I won't have to work too hard to describe to you some of the things that make living the Christian life hard. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time at all, the reality is you'll know some of these things that I'm about to describe all too well. Uh, but there may be some people here this morning that would not yet call themselves Christians. You may have come along because you're interested. You may have been dragged along by other family members. There may be something preventing you from making that full step to trusting Jesus and living for him. And, it, and you may be living almost a kind of double life. You're one way with your Christian friends and a different way at school or at university or in the workplace. And for you, these may be the very reasons you haven't taken the step. For Christians, it's what makes the Christian life hard. For you, it may be one of the barriers preventing you to fully following the Lord Jesus Christ. 
these are some of the major things that cause problems for Christians or are deterrents for people becoming followers of Jesus. There's lots of them, but I'm going to give you my top five. Not top five as in, woohoo, let's rejoice at these five. This is not. And I, there are no order. In fact, I'd probably put number five at number one. But um, uh, here's my top five. You can come and speak to me during the rest of the day and add to them as you will. Number one, doubts. Doubts. So much of the Christian faith seems fanciful. Belief in a God that we can't see. It's about rules that are, seem outdated and out of touch. It's got the supernatural stuff that doesn't seem realistic. We could go on and on. Some of the teaching is so hard or difficult or sometimes so simple and kind of childish it puts us off because it leaves us with nagging questions. Can I really believe this? Is this really true? Are you serious? That's doubts. Secondly, number two, suffering. Few things put people of Christianity more than suffering because this is not just an academic question. When awful things happen to us, or awful things happen to people that we know and love, we say to God, how could you, Lord? Where are you, God? Sometimes we say, how dare you, God? And we struggle under the weight of wondering whether God doesn't care enough, or whether God isn't powerful enough, or whether we don't have enough faith. Or And those kind of feelings and questions can be absolutely destructive in the Christian life. Few things cause such anger or resentment at God or such confusion and questions at God than sorrow from suffering. Suffering is a huge problem. So number one, doubt. Number two, suffering. Number three, false teaching. I think I'm right in saying that nothing seems to be warned against as much in the New Testament with the kind of strength and regularity as false teaching for Christians within the church. It's on the lips of Jesus himself very often. In fact, I think I just heard him ringing to tell us about it. (laughs) A false teaching comes up again and again and again. And there's a reason why. False teaching is, there's two reasons why actually, is destructive. False teaching is utterly destructive because it leads to wrong beliefs, wrong assumptions, wrong lifestyle in the Christian life. It leads people, because of those wrong beliefs and wrong practices, away from the Lord. So it's destructive. But secondly, it's unexpected. We're, it's, it's like when I used to, I'd never played AFL, if you know um, Australian football. I'd always played rugby and league growing up. And rugby and league's easier at one level because the, the tackle always comes from in front. You're ready for it. I played Aussie League for the first time as a Kiwi over in Australia, and they loved it because you can get tackled from anywhere. So instead of knowing the direction it's coming from, they can hammer you everywhere. And everyone at that college wanted to hammer the Kiwi. They did. And so they hammered me from all sides. And you're not protected. You're not ready for it. You're not kind of just strengthening yourself before it comes to get ready for it. It's unexpected. That's false teaching. We expect it from the world. We don't expect it from within the church. But it comes. And often people who've come under false teaching walk away from the Lord and they're the hardest ones to bring back to Jesus. Because as far as they're concerned, I tried it and it didn't work. But what they tried was false. It was wrong, but it's a tragedy. So false teaching. Doubts, suffering, false teaching. Number four, pressure or persecution. It can be either way. That could be the snide remarks of friends or colleagues who know you're a Christian and go to church. Or for some Christians around the world, it could be the physical harm or arrest or death that you face because you follow Jesus. Pressure or persecution. In New Zealand, it tends to be the former, but it may not always be that way. 
The knowledge that some people will think you're stupid because of what you believe. Some people will hate you because of what you believe. They will find it so offensive. Some people will seek to pressure you or punish you in some way. That could range from a knowing glance at someone else in the conversation because they know where you stand, or it could be the lack of an invitation to an event because they know who you are. It could be ignoring, it could be attacking. It can happen in lots of different ways. And it can cause, that pressure or persecution can cause Christians to lose heart, to lose desire and passion for Jesus, and to fall away. Pressure and persecution. Uh, Then the last one is one that um, uh, many people at St. Stephen's have heard me speak on before. Uh, because it's one that I personally think is often the most dangerous of all. Number five is drifting. Drifting. The awful bit here, the power of drifting is you don't even know it's happening. That's the danger of drifting. That's the powerful imagery that drifting should conjure up when the Bible warns us about drifting. It's like being in a boat without an anchor as a sailor and you're asleep in the boat and the waves and the wind just gently just bit by bit move you further and further off course. Doesn't, not enough to wake you up. Not enough to jolt you and make you go, oh, I'm going off course. But by the time you wake up, so gentle you don't even realise it. But by the time you wake up, you're miles off course and you never get back. That's what happens with drifting in the life of a Christian. Where it's not the big event, it's not the persecution that's come on, or the suffering that's come on, or these major doubts or questions that people had. It's just normal everyday life. It's just the routine of going to work, the career. It's just the relationship, the human relationships that take all our time and attention. It's just the busyness and the uh, bit by bit, the wave drifts us away from Jesus without us even knowing, drifting. I think it's one of the most dangerous uh, and most common. These are some of the key enemies of the Christian life. Doubts, suffering, false teaching, pressure, persecution, Drifting. As I say, we could probably go on, but there's my top five. These are powerful, destructive enemies that have caused the ruination of many who call Jesus Lord. It's from one of these five, or sometimes a combination, that they've stopped calling Jesus Lord and stopped living for him. The good news is that God hasn't left us alone as we face these enemies. He helps us in our times of need. This is one of the joys of being a Christian. You're never alone in this. He's always with us. And he gives us incredible gifts. He gives us his word, which I spoke about in the first session. He gives us prayer so that we can pour out our hearts to him. He gives us his spirit so that he's not just kind of vaguely around, he's within us. All these things are mighty comforts and weapons in the spiritual battles that we often find ourselves in. But perhaps the easiest to forget and neglect is he gives us each other. He gives us our Christian fellowship. He gives us brothers and sisters in Christ who stand by us and alongside us. Sometimes they drag us, sometimes they push us, sometimes they frustrate us. All those kind of things. Now earlier we looked at the the first uh, topic in this series, relationship with God and Christ. Now we're looking at our relationship with other Christians. And in particular, the primary relationship is the local church. Our relationship with other Christians. And the reading that Sharon gave us from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul urges Christians to live a life worthy of the calling we've received. There's a great motto to have as a Christian. What do you want to do as a Christian? I want to live a life worthy of the calling I've received. That's a great kind of uh, big picture motto to, to have in mind. But then almost immediately, the verses are all about Christians collectively, not individually. 
Did you notice that? It was all about us, not just I. It was about we, not just you. It's about the collective. It uses those kind of languages. One body, one spirit. The one comes all the way through. A fundamental part of living a life worthy of our calling is we do it together in fellowship. If we are united in Christ, like I said in the first talk, our, that unit, that with, our union with Christ means we also have unity with other Christians, with other believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. A Christian doesn't just have a relationship with God. It's not just about you and your relationship with God. We're brought into a family and we have relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. We're saved into the body of Christ. And that is the universal church, which is all the, all the churches on earth and in heaven, down through the It's every single believer. And we live that out and express that in local churches at a particular time and in a particular place. And so can I ask you, have you ever thought of your Christian faith in that way before? It's not just about you and God. It's about you and God and your family. Your family. Every Christian. You have been, one of the most wonderful things that the gospel does is it makes us adopted. God adopts us as his children, as sons and daughters. We're brought into the family with all the blessings and responsibilities that that conveys. That's what a family is. A family should provide blessings and it, should, and it provides responsibilities. One of the weaknesses, I think, of modern Christianity and modern churches is we've brought into the individualism and that selfishness of the West. And we think more about me than us. We think more about me and what I like and what I want to do than about what's good for all of us. I worry that it creeps more and more into the, the, the Christian walk and churches in particular. I worry about my faith, my relationship with God, my walk with the Lord and no one or nothing else. And I think you can see the trend. In the West, the, the traditional nuclear family has broken down drastically. And therefore, what happens is, the place where blessings and responsibilities are learnt and uh, reward, you know, given and blessed, all that kind of thing, uh, you can see that playing out in culture. It's happening more and more in the church. As the church becomes more selfish and individualistic, there are less blessings and less people taking responsibilities. You can see it all around. We need each other. The church, I'm talking here uh, about the local church, think of since the, the church is not a hostel or a hotel or a castle where we expect to be served, nor is it a flat where it's every person for themselves. It's a home with a family where there are blessings and responsibilities. And so in this talk, we're thinking about our relationship with other Christians. We're thinking about the church and the way we need each other, need to serve each other are blessed and give blessings, how we need to model and have modelled to us, how we need correction and need to correct others, how we need encouragement and give encouragement and train and all those sorts of things. From the reading that Sharon gave us, it's the idea in verse 11 of the different, we've all got different gifts. God has given us different gifts, but those gifts are needed for all of us. And without some of us, we're, we're less than we should be and could be. We all contribute and we all need each other's contributions. In verse 11 in the reading, it talks about some of the big foundational gifts. Uh, we need apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers. But we need more than that too. Within a church family, you need the thinkers. You need the people that actually think things through. But you, 
But if it's just thinkers, it's a nightmare. We need the doers. We need the doers in the Christian life. We need the, the people that have got an academic bent and that they're really good in their brains. And, uh, but we also need people that have got common sense because normally those two things don't go together. And we know that. And the people that are laughing are not academic. They're looking down at the academics. We need the, the singers and we need the readers. We need the people that are open and chatty and we need the reserved and quiet ones. We need the naive and sheltered ones and we need the ones with experience. We need each other. Church grows us like that. This is church. The well-known verse in Hebrews 10 that uh, often gets said at um, churches to raise church attendance is that verse in Hebrews 10 where it says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. And you've probably heard it quoted to you lots of times. Let us not give up meeting as some are in the habit of doing. Well, why not? Why not? Why can't we give up meeting? I can do everything that I do at church at home by myself. I can read the Bible by myself. I can sing the songs by myself. I can't sing the songs as well as we do with Aaron and Grace and the music team, but I can still sing them. Would you like to hear me? No. I can, I can hear a sermon. People playing podcasts all the time now. I can drink wine and eat bread. I can pray. There's only one thing I can't do. My, my, I can't have fellowship. It's the only thing I can't have. The only thing I can't do is to be encouraged and challenged by brothers and sisters in Christ or have the opportunity to encourage and challenge my brothers and sisters in Christ. But we need that. And the Lord uses our fellowship within our churches to work on us because all of us are a work in progress. There's not one person here who's made it in the Christian life. There was only one. And he's no longer with us at the moment but reigns at the right hand of the Father. The Lord uses our fellowship within our churches to work on us, to grow us, to mature us, to strengthen us, sometimes to humble us, sometimes to sharpen us, sometimes to break us or to mould us, sometimes to embarrass us or shame us, sometimes to pick us up or reshape us. If you don't remember anything else I say in this talk, remember this. The Christian walk is not a solo event, it's a team game. The Christian walk is not a solo event, it's a team game. And so in this talk, we're thinking about our relationship with other Christians and primarily within our local church because that's where we express it and live it the most. It's not the only way, but it's the primary way. The blessings we should receive from one another and the responsibilities we have towards each other. And I'm going to do that by talking about two needs that Christians have from these verses in Ephesians. The need to grow and the need to serve. That's the two, the, the kind of structure. The need to grow and the need to serve. Firstly, the need to grow. Every Christian needs to grow. As I just said before, none of us are the finished product. We need to be growing, maturing. Verse 14, Paul doesn't want us to be like infants tossed by the waves, but growing and maturing. When you've got a kid who's that young and there's, they get bowled over everywhere. I was, I was asking Jamie before she, whether she remembers this, but she doesn't remember it that well. I should have asked Jessie. One of my memories uh, in Australia was Jess, Jessie was only, he would have been about two, I think, and we went to one of the uh, Sydney beaches. I can't remember which one. might have been Bondi. And I remember him going out to the water and him getting knocked over about five or six times by the waves. And I would have done something, but I was killing myself laughing. Because every time he went to stand up, something else would knock him over. And I went out there and I said, look, Jesse, look at me. I'm fine. No, I didn't do that. But I did find it funny. Because 
Because that's what happens when you're immature. That's the imagery that Paul's doing here. But as you grow, you get to know how water works. You look for the wave. You steady yourself. You don't get blown around in those. We need to mature and grow. All of us as Christians start immature, lacking knowledge and understanding, lacking wisdom and experience. We need to grow. Are you interested in growing as a Christian, or are you happy where you are? That's an important question. If you're happy where you are, can I politely say that's not good enough? We want to be growing, all of us. All of us, we must be. And we need to grow in all areas. We need to grow in knowledge, but we also need to grow in love. We need to grow in service. We need to grow in faithfulness and obedience. And often that growth will be work, hard work. Sometimes I think we just, well, we expect God to do it automatically for us. But a lot of the growth comes through solid work, through perspiration, through getting knocked down and getting back up again, through commitment and failure and all those sorts of things. I want to say, too, that we need to grow in both head and heart. Sometimes when I, when I say we need to grow, people just think head. But we need head and heart. Think about that. Uh, most of us, I think, are by nature more naturally head or heart people. What I mean by that is there are some of us that are very considered, we're very thoughtful, we work things out and we uh, seek to understand them conceptually. We work out cost-benefit ratios and uh, we're careful with plans and uh, resources. But some of us don't live that way at all. Some of us are just intuitive and dreamers and we just do and live and love and we go with the gut and we trust feelings and instinct and we have passion. We're often naturally, by nature, more head or more heart. But you need both in the Christian walk and you need to, we need to grow in both in the Christian walk. We need the heart. I think there's a reason that Christians don't just recite truths, but we sing praises when we get together. The Lord instructs us to sing praises. And I take it that that's because the heart's involved when there's music. There are some Christians who, who, who worry about Christians getting too emotional or emotive when it comes to music. But I don't think we should worry about it. I take it that that's part of the reason of music, that it involves our heart often, that it leads to thankfulness or awe or love or praise. All these things involve passion and feelings. And that's good and it's right because it's a relationship with God in Jesus that we've got. It's not simply a contract. That's what I was saying before. It's a relationship with God that we have. It's not simply a business arrangement or a set of propositional facts that we agree with. We've got a relationship with God. In other words, we've got a friend. We've got a saviour. We've got a father. We've got a king. We've got a help. We've got a comfort. These things should stir us. These things should bring emotions like love and joy and thanks and fear and awe. We need the heart, and we need to grow in this area. Our churches should express the wonder of God and the glory of Jesus and the awesomeness in the, in, of the Lord in ways that warm our hearts and stir our souls and grow our relationships with in a, in a heart sense. We want to be growing in that way. But we also need to grow in our heads. And again, I'm saying this because often we don't think in these ways, but, but we need to. We also need to grow in our heads. In the Bible, we see Jesus and his disciples training in knowledge training and teaching. We see Paul going out, and he's not just 
trying to move the soul, but he's explaining and proving and reasoning. We see the hard work of studying. Do you remember the Bereans who used to hear Paul preach, and then off they used to went, open up the scriptures and see if this is right? They were thinking and reflecting and questioning. They were growing in the head. So that when our feelings are not enough to get us through, when our experiences have caused us to feel so bleak or low, when the darkness is palpable, we've got concrete truths we know in our head to be able to repeat to ourselves. When we can hold on to those truths that we know in our head and, and state them to ourselves and remind ourselves, and they motivate us and stir us up and hold us and revive us. And so churches, I think, need to provide opportunities to, to learn in the head, programs where we grow in our knowledge and understanding and we push and we, we, we push programs to do that. And So think about yourself. Are you more naturally head or heart? If you know what you are, don't be suspicious of the other. <laughs> Rejoice in the other. And that's one of the benefits of the Christian life. We have the others around us to, so that we get the balance, so that we get inspired as we see others. Do you see that this is the blessing of church? This is why we need each other. We will have others around us who are different to us and who can help us when we're missing something or lacking something. We can have others who model things to us uh, or encourage us or inspire us in those things. Some of you will know the blessing of having someone around you who prays in a way that encourages your spirit. And sometimes you need that. Some of you will have um, lived with a person or worked alongside someone who sings spontaneously in a way that quickens your heart or annoys you on the wrong day, but at other times quickens your heart. Then you'll know other people who have got a, a wonderful way of being able to open up the word and teach it in a way that just clicks and stays in your head, who speaks the truth so powerfully or simply that it sinks in and changes our perspective or behavior. These are the blessings we get from one another. But we, need, but we need each other to be able to grow in head and heart. One of the things I'd like us to do over the course of this weekend is to be thinking about where we are and where we may need some changes or where we can offer things to other people or where we need other people's gifts to, to kind of help us. I've said this before, but I'll keep saying it. One of the blessings that the Lord gave us at St Stephen's through the earthquakes was helping three services move into one so that we're multi-generational. Because we see the benefits of each other, the different ages and stages of life, the different races and experience and head and heart balance and all that, we've got the spectrum within our church family and what a blessing it is for us. Most of the world doesn't get that. If you think about people that live their normal lives today in the West, they're so individualistic and separated, the only examples of life they get are on their screen. That's how they learn about the world and how to relate. And, uh, but the church allows us to do these things together and to be blessed and challenged and grow together. That's why I'm personally committed to churches that are not just the same age or race or age or stage or wealth or any of those. There can be a place for those. There can be a place for getting together with people that are in a similar stage uh, for a while because you, you can talk about the same issues and stuff like that. But we also need the challenge and the opportunity of diversity because we learn from each other. The Lord uses our fellowship to shape and sharpen us. I love uh, the groups that were being spoken of up here this morning that span the ages. So you've got the young 
Uh, this is, these are generalisations, so forgive me if you think I'm being rude to any particular group. No, actually, I'll be rude to every group, so you can't take it personally. The, I love it when there's people within a group that are young and energetic and inspiring, and, and, and the, the older ones rejoice in that. And the older ones provide wisdom and experience, and the younger ones learn from that. I love it when there's a, a young person in a Bible study group who, when it comes to the prayer requests, makes a massive deal out of the exam that they've got coming up and the stress they're facing. And, uh, and then the next person on the prayer request is an older person whose child's in hospital and may not live. And it's not that the first one's unimportant, but suddenly there's a perspective there that you may not have experienced otherwise. And suddenly you're seeing the world as God sees it and as other people see it, not just as I see it in my position. There's enormous strength to that. I love it when um, there's an older person in the group who's ashamed as they hear of a younger person who's talking about another conversation they had with a non-Christian and they're inspired for it. And those things are brilliant. It's a great gift to be part of a church family where a newly married couple can look at other married couples who've been together and cherished each other for long periods of time and say, what have you done? Can I learn from you in that way? And what is it that following the Lord has helped you in that particular relationship? Or people that are single and struggling with can go to an older single person and say, how, how has the Lord kept you and what have you done to not become bitter or, or so lonely or the chance to speak to parents about how they've raised their children uh, in Christ or what mistakes they made, not just successes, to learn from each other and find inspiration and encouragement and to find challenge and to be spurred on. This is the gift of Christian fellowship, to have other Christians who know us well enough to be able to encourage us or rebuke us, to know what we need and how we need to receive it. The Lord uses all this to grow us as Christians. This is the learning that's part of being a disciple because that's what the word disciple means. We keep growing and going. And churches must enable that deliberately. That's why we push the small groups. It's not just because there's a space to fill. It's not just because... It's because we need that. And on a Sunday or at a time like this when there's a bigger group... There's some value to what we're doing here, but there's also value in getting together with a smaller group where you can talk more personally and share more intimately. And we saw some of the, the differences of the sizes of group this morning as uh, people got up and spoke about it. That's so important. Accountability is also part of that growth. I don't know whether you've ever thought about that before, but we need each other because we're accountable to one another. And God uses accountability, I think, to grow us. To mature us. Often when we're not accountable, that's when we're at our worst. I was thinking about whether this is just me and whether it's just a personal kind of failure of mine that when I'm not accountable I'm at my worst, but I don't think it is. I think it's in the scriptures. I think it's right the way through the New Testament. When we're anonymous, we're at our worst. When no one can see, when no one will know, then we're sometimes uh, at our worst. Uh, if you don't believe me, think about the internet. I think I said a few weeks ago in a, um, a talk on sex that um, a lot of people who never would have taken part in pornography a few years ago because there was an accountability to it. You had to go and see a shopkeeper or a certain place where people could be seen. So they would never have gotten and used pornography because they would have been seen and they were accountable in some way. Now because of the internet, because they can do it in the privacy of their own home, at the click of a mouse or a scroll of a phone, now they're doing it because they're anonymous. 
or people who would never speak in harsh words using vulgar language or terrible sentiment or because they wouldn't want to be seen in that way. See them in chat rooms, the way they insult each other or what they say to one another or because it's anonymous. Accountability uh, is good. It helps us make good choices and grow and mature. Uh, I personally think that's um, one of the reasons why Paul talks about singleness as a gift because when you're married, often you've got more explicit accountability. You share your life with someone so closely that they see and know everything about you, the good and the bad. I've got no doubt marrying Jamie was amongst the most important things I did to help my Christian walk because I was accountable to Jamie and I loved her so much, I wanted to be more and more the man she, she, wanted, she should have. Uh, same when I was a, a parent. I think God talks about singleness at one level because there are some people who don't require that kind of accountability because there's a maturity and a strength of character and a discipline that I don't have. God looked at me and said, yeah, you need to be married. Uh, Accountability works in those kind of ways. That happens in smaller groups. That happens when we're sharing life and prayer requests, uh, the kind of things that uh, Andrew and Anne and Aaron were talking about this morning. When we're alongside each other, where we can share with each other and ask questions, where we can fall over in front of each other and get back up, Christian relationships that can provide the arm around us when we need that, the shoulder we need to lean on when we need that, the hard word we need to hear when we need that, someone to pick us up, someone to challenge us to go further or deeper. Growth happens through fellowship. Do you see that? In church, we're accountable to each other and it helps us grow. We need it. One of the, when you're going through a rough patch as a Christian, two things nearly always happen. Prayer life goes and meeting with other Christians goes. Because they're, but they're the two things we need most. We need to be speaking to the Lord and we need the encouragement and support and spur of other Christians around us. So that's firstly the need to grow. Secondly, more quickly, we need to serve. We need to serve. Christianity is never just about getting ourselves over the finish line. As I said before, it's not the solo sport. It's a team game. It's about us getting everyone over it. James uh, last night and Lee today reminded us to look around the room and say, this is our family. It's a good thing to do. We want everyone in this room to get over the line. We want everyone in this, world, in this room to, to be with the Lord. And we've got a responsibility to each other to do that. If some of us didn't make it, then you know, we want to have known we did everything we could. It's us doing what we can to inspire, to help, to challenge, to teach, to, to give uh, time or money or whatever is needed for the good of others. We need to serve. Too often today, and I'm going to say this strongly because I, I, I think it, too often today church has become selfish. Church has become about me and my experience. I choose the ch- church I like. I serve in the ways I want that make me feel better and uh, are the, the, the standard of serving I think I should be having. And I will leave a church if I don't like the music or if I don't have the opportunities that I want, uh, instead of thinking about how can I serve the Lord and be a blessing to others. Now, people leave churches, local churches today like that and just go somewhere else because something... Now, I'm not, please don't mishear me. I'm not saying there's never a place for leaving a local church. Sometimes there is. But it should always be painful. It should always be thought through. And, but today we don't even, we're in danger of never, not even thinking about it because we, we think of church, like everything else, as consumers. 
We think of church as, well, it needs to be the product that I want and the way I want it. That's wrong thinking. Because church is never just, just about receiving. It's about participating. And we do that as we turn up. I can't tell you what an encouragement it is when people turn up. Week by week in the middle of busy lives and just seeing someone on a Sunday. Every week I'm encouraged as I look around the school hall and I see people turning up. And you think, it's worth it. And with brothers and sisters, just turning up is serving others. But it's as we turn up, as we sing. Sometimes doesn't your heart soar as we sing together? It doesn't soar like that when I sing by myself. It does when you're, you're with all these brothers and sisters in Christ, some of whom are incredibly gifted in music. It, it, we, we, um, church is about us talking to people, us putting out chairs, sweeping up, seeing needs and fulfilling them, using our gifts and opportunities for the glory of God and for the good of others. As we go to church on a Sunday morning or the small group on a midweek, not hoping that people will be nice to us, but praying that God would give us a chance to help someone else. Going not out of duty or habit or as a burden, but to delight that I'm going to meet with brothers and sisters in Christ who I pray I can be a joy to and a blessing for so that I can help George get through the day or I can bless Maisie in some small way or I can challenge Fred because I think he needs it or set an example for Harry. We need to serve each other. And God tells us we need this and he's given us different gifts to be able to do that. And we will need these gifts to be blessed by from others and they will need our gifts to bless them at different times. Serving, though, for their good, not to make ourselves feel better. I point that out because although uh, service is so important in the Christian life, serving can become selfish sometimes, even within church life, where I only want to serve in the ways that I feel I should be which are nearly always kind of upfront and seen by others, or bless me in some way. No, it's for others primarily. So it may be anonymous. No one may know the things that you've done. Your heavenly Father knows. It may be lowly. It may not be enjoyable. It's whatever's needed, right? I still remember my early days at St. Stephen's and being impressed by one of the... Um, who I thought was probably one of the more accomplished members of our church, the kind of person who could have been preaching every Sunday or running the music program or whatever else, they used to stay behind after the evening service and vacuum. I used to think, what a great example. What a great example. Also saved me about half an hour every Sunday night. I was pleased about that. What a great way to walk in the footsteps of the one who came not to be served, but to serve. We don't want to be selfish in our service, but we need to do it. Now, even though I've just said service shouldn't be selfish, it does benefit us, service. And I hope you know that. Serving is life-giving, but so few people do it. I've said this to the young adults a number of times, so forgive me to the young adults who've heard me say it, but you talk to some of the health experts at the moment and they would say that there's been an explosion of people struggling with life at the moment. Uh, sometimes it's suicide, sometimes it's mental health problems, sometimes it's depression. There's a whole range of things. And the, the health experts will say that there's a small group that actually they need some physical, biological, chemical, they'll need some help. But for the vast majority of people that are struggling, if they, help, if they did three things in life better, they'd be in a much better position. What are the three things in life? Exercise, sleep, and food, right food. Someone say serving, good work, uh, but we're coming to that. So that's what, this is just worldly expert advice, right? That if people slept properly, 
Because all these people say, well, I'm a night owl. <laughs> no, you're just not sleeping enough. Uh, if people slept right well, if they... Probably the wrong time to talk about sleep at camp, is that right? Uh, if people slept properly, if they ate properly and they exercised, that helps with life. Now, as Christians, we go, yeah, that's how God created us. That's why it works. But there's, there's truth in it. But as Christians, I would add two more that help. And the two more that I would always add are work and service. Work and service. Human beings were created to work. Work comes before the fall. Before the fall. It's not that we fell and now we've got to work. We worked before the fall. It's just that work's hard. There's few things as satisfying as a good day's work and being shattered at the end of it, where you know you've achieved something and done something. Service is the other. We were created to serve. God, who is relational in himself as Father, Son, and Spirit, created us in his own image, and we operate best in the way that we are intended to when we are serving one another. When we're not serving, we're suboptimal. And it's life-giving when we serve others. And I've pointed, pointed this out to the young adults a lot at the moment because I think we're creating a culture of people growing up, generations growing up, which are not working and not serving. They're not working because they don't have to anymore. You used to have to work or you didn't live. You couldn't have food. You didn't have a house. Now people stay at home until they're 29, 30, you know, that kind of thing, and it's still bright. You don't have to work. And we're so selfish and individualistic we're not serving. When people are not doing those two things, they wrestle in and of themselves. And actually getting them to work and getting them to serve is getting them to live as they were intended by their creator. It's life-giving. But we don't just do it for ourselves. We do it for the good of others. And we do it because we have a servant king who served us. We've got to serve. And so at church, can I ask you, how do you serve? Who do you serve? What is it you do? Who do you look out for? When you turn up on Sunday, what's your attitude? And don't just think on Sunday for an hour and a half. What about the rest of the, the week? And I'm not just talking about rosters. A name That's a part of serving, but there's so much more than that. Do you only go to the things you like and that bless you, uh, or do you go for others in different areas? This is one of the reasons regular visiting other churches is not helpful. I sometimes say to people, don't, don't visit regularly other churches. It's not because you're worried about people going to another church or, or that kind of... It's because in doing that, you're working against the purpose of church because you're only going to get something for yourself. You're not going there and then serving the whole. And you can't serve multiple churches. It just doesn't work. Friends, what I'm saying is we need each other. We've got to wrap it up. Uh, we need to grow. We need to serve and the blessing we have as a Christian family is we do that together, learning from each other. People here will be a blessing to us at times, and at other times, they will be our responsibility. Look round. We care for the people in this room. We want them crossing the line at the end. We want to bless them and encourage them. Am I my brother's keeper? Who asked that question? Cain. And he meant it as a no. But the answer to that question was, yes, we are our brother's keeper. We are to be our brothers and sisters' keeper, serving them, wanting them to grow, wanting them to flourish, looking out for them. The underlying principle, uh, those, oh, it's not there anymore, is it? But uh, the underlying, uh, those seven principles of this talk is deliberate discipleship. Because Jesus didn't call his followers to go into the world to make converts. He called them into the world to make disciples. 
And, but the first word is important, deliberate. Because often in our Christian life, we don't do things intentionally. We just kind of stumble into them. I want us here to think about how we help others be disciples. How we encourage them to grow and to serve. How we keep them drawing closer and closer to the Lord. Let me wrap up. When, when we have a relationship with the Lord, we're brought into a relationship with other Christians. The local expression of that is the, the local church, where deliberate discipleship is the name of the game. We want Christians to be able to survive the dangers of doubt. We want Christians to be able to be strong enough to get through the periods in life when they will suffer terribly. We want Christians to be able to be robust enough to persist in the face of false teaching. We want Christians to be able to endure pressure and persecution. We want Christians to be wise enough and aware enough to be able to resist, to see and resist drifting. For that to happen, we need each other. The Lord uses our fellowship to make us more and more like Jesus, to hold us on so that we can be a blessing. How are you growing? How are you serving? What could you do this year to deliberately focus on your relationship to the Lord for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would help us as we uh, think through some of these issues. Lord, we long to be more like Jesus. We long to grow in our relationship with you and to be serving more and more so that we can be of benefit to others. We thank you for our fellowship. Father, help us not take it for granted. Help us not be selfish with it. I pray that more and more we would be looking out to support and strengthen and encourage and challenge our brothers and sisters in Christ, and that in doing that, it would help each one of us, and we would then be a blessing to others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.